So this is chapter 3 now, and I'll start reading Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hathasurus. In the first month, which is the month of Nasan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples and to every province in his own script and every people in his own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to kill, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. 
the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And chapter 4 now. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them laid in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and their eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he would take off his sackcloth and he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hatchoth, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been called, appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that it might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg her fa his favour and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is, one but law, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat 
or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we make that hymn our prayer today, that as we approach your word, we pray that you would speak. Speak, I pray thee, gentle Jesus, all my soul within me yearneth. Now to hear thy voice divine, so shall grief be gone forever, and despair no more be mine. We look to you to attend now the preaching of your word to that end, and that even in this day, your children would know the liberty that they have in Christ. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to know it, to rejoice in it, and to live in light of it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever crushed your finger in a door, he said, this was 100 times worse. Aaron Ralston was out walking in Blue John Canyon, Utah, when an 800-pound boulder dislodged and fell on his right arm. He had one liter of water, two burritos, three chunks of chocolate to last him the next six days. And someone wrote, this. He eked out his water, futilely chipping away at the 800-pound rock and slowly entering a state of delirium until he was eventually forced to cut off his trapped arm with the small knife from his cheap multi-tool kit. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And as we continue our series in the book of Esther, Today, that old saying, desperate times call for desperate measures, sum up chapters three and four perfectly. Uh, if you weren't with us last Sunday morning, or if you just need a reminder, uh, the book of Esther takes place about 500 years before the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Persian Empire. And the, the king at the time, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, as his name is in Greek, took Esther, this young Jewish orphan girl to be his wife and queen, much to the consternation of Mordecai, her older cousin. And together, Esther and Mordecai would respond to the threat of genocide. And the point of the book of Esther, when taken as a whole, is that God's purposes are fulfilled through God's 
providence. Please let me say that again. God's purposes are fulfilled through God's providence. Providence meaning God's ordering or God's arranging or God's governing of all things. And I argued last week, last Sunday morning, that we need this book in our lives because we need to learn to trust God. The book of Esther teaches us that God can be trusted even in the most impossible of circumstances, even when it looks like no one is in control, even when it looks like there is no rhyme or reason to life. God can be trusted because God is working. And I reminded us last week, didn't I, that God's name doesn't appear once in the book of Esther, which means we never read those words, and the word of the Lord came to Esther in answer to a problem that she was facing. Uh, There was no prophetic dream. There was no angelic messenger. But even though God's God's name never appears on the page, God's work was in between every line. And as I said last Sunday, that is where we live. That at the end of our uh, day when we turn in for the night, there is no divine digest helping us to work out what God was doing in the details of that day. There's no angelic messenger. We are simply called to live by faith. We are simply called to live by faith in Romans 28, which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And I want the book of Esther to assure us that that was true then and that that is true now. But although Esther chapters 3 and 4 present us with this sovereign God, Esther chapter 3 and 4 also reminds us that we are responsible nevertheless. Yet That yes, God is over all things, uh, that God, God is sovereignly reigning and ruling over all that he has made, over all that we can see, over all that we cannot see. And yet we too, at the same time, are called to obey. Uh, we are called to be responsible. We are called to risk in the path of obedience. Not because God needs us, but because God has chosen to include us in the unfolding of his plans and purposes in the world. And that is a privilege. And the part that you are called to play may well be bigger than you dare to think. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And may God help us to see that as we look at these two chapters today. So let's look first then at the desperate time. The desperate time, because as you, as you heard from our reading earlier, as Gary read from us, Esther chapter 3 catapults us into a crisis, or rather I should say into the crisis of this book. And it was a crisis, you heard, that was birthed out of the conflict between two men, Haman and Mordecai. Do just let me say, if all of these unfamiliar names throw you off a little bit from the story of Esther. Let me give this tip to you. Uh, When you hear the name Haman, think Hitler. Uh, They both had the same uh, first letter of their name and they both had essentially the same plan in life, annihilate the Jews. And Esther chapter three, verse one, gives us a clue as to why. 
Haman is introduced to us as Haman the Agagite. Well, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites had tirelessly persecuted the Jews since the time of Moses, about 1,000 years before this moment here in Esther. And evidently, the anti-Semitism of his forefathers had sailed down to him on a river of blood. That is almost certainly why Mordecai would not bow to Haman. There was no more worship in a bow back then than there is in a curtsy today. But Mordecai had been around Haman for long enough to know that the anti-Semitism of his forefathers was firmly established within him, and therefore Mordecai, a Jew, could not bow. Well, the next thing we know, Haman slithers up to King Ahasuerus and he hands him an intoxicating cocktail of truths and half-truths. Why? To get the king to sign off on genocide. Look at verse 8. Haman said, there is a certain people scattered abroad. Do you hear that language? Haman is trying to make the Jews sound about as faceless as possible. There is a a certain people scattered abroad. Verse 8 again, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. What's he saying? He's saying this certain people are a menacing threat and they are everywhere. Everywhere you're to look. Verse 8 again, their laws are different from those of every people and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Well, not only was that not true, but Mordecai had risked his life in the last chapter to keep the king alive. But then Haman, Hitler, talks money. If we wipe this people out, he says, then we can plunder them to the tune of 10,000 talents. And that was just below the annual revenue of the Persian Empire at the time. Well, the serpent Haman needed hiss no more. The green light was given, Haman would lead the charge, and the Jews would be erased just like that. And if that weren't enough to convince you that this was a desperate time, think for a moment about the injustice of this situation. Mordecai, the Jew, had been the one to save the king's life at the end of chapter 2, flip to chapter 3, and who is promoted? Haman, the Agagite, at at the beginning of chapter 3. If ever someone deserved a promotion, it was Mordecai. And we'll see the significance of that later on. But if ever, was, if ever Mordecai was tempted to believe God is not in control, God is not in charge, there is no rhyme and reason to any of this, surely this was the time. And yet all was not as it seemed. Verse 7 tells us that the king's servants cast pur or cast lots, or we would say today, through dice, in the first month, in the month of Nisan. And verse 12 tells us that the proclamation or the publication of genocide was to go out to all of the provinces on the first month, the month of Nisan. Why is that important? 
Because the month of Nisan was when God bust the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. And so there is a heavenly hint. There is a wink from heaven so as to say what God was able to do back then. God is still able to do now. Esther and Mordecai, think about this, and all of the Jews thought they were standing on the brink of annihilation. Whereas in reality, they were stood on the brink of another deliverance of God. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. And church, listen to me, when it looks like no one is in control, when it looks like evil is winning, when it looks like the devil is conquering, God is working. God is still mighty to save. God's hands are not tied. God is in the business of turning life's most desperate circumstances on their head for the salvation of his people and for the glory of his name. That was true in Egypt. That was true in Persia. That is true in Afghanistan, in Russia, in North Korea today. We can be hopeful even when life looks hopeless. Fast forward 500 years from this moment here in Esther, and we find ourselves in a desert. And we find ourselves overhearing another conflict because the devil tempted and ordered Christ to do exactly what Haman the Agagite was commanding Mordecai to do here, bow to him. And just as Mordecai refused and had the Persian Empire against him, Jesus refused and would soon have Rome against him. But Jesus' crucifixion was Jesus' victory. Jesus' crucifixion was our month of Nisan. Jesus' crucifixion was the securing of another exodus from Satan, sin, death, demons, and hell, such that at the cross, Jesus Christ put Satan and all of his rulers to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God was in it all. God was controlling it, guiding it, directing it. It's why the apostle Peter and the the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4, Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And therefore, again, friends, the point is this. When it looks like evil is winning, God is working. God is working for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. Therefore, friends, do not bow the knee to evil. Do not bow the knee to evil. Why would Mordecai have been tempted to bow the knee to Haman? Well, to save his life. And why might we be tempted to bow to evil today? Well, to save our bacon for the self of self-preservation. But listen to me, why would we ask evil to do what God is more than able to do? To hell with self-preservation, God can save us just fine. 
Do not bow to evil to save your life. Trust in the sovereignty of God. And so when you show up work on the, on the 1st of June and you arrive at your desk and you find that there's a pride flag and a pride lanyard waiting for you there, do not bow. Now, please let me say we do not hate people who experience same-sex attraction. We are not against people, uh, gay, uh, people who experience that. We are not against them in any way. If we are, we are in sin and we need to repent. But we cannot affirm behavior that God denies and therefore do not bow. And when your friend who, who tells you that you can no longer believe what the, the Bible says about Jesus being the only way to heaven and what the Bible teaches about gender roles in, in the church, do not bow. We do not need to bow to the world to win the world we don't need to buy it. Again, when it looks like evil is winning, God is working. We serve a God who brings victory out of defeat, who brings glory out of shame, who brings triumph out of tragedy. And therefore, there is never a good time to bow the knee to evil. But there is always a good time to bow the knee to God in faith. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I took our dog, Charles Haddon Willis, for a, a walk the other day, and I was listening to this uh, biographical sketch on a pastor who lived in the 1700s called Charles Simeon. That's just how down with the kids I am. And he suffered tremendously in his life, but he said this, and I want you to listen to this. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head is safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus, the head of the church, has already conquered. He's come through. He's been victorious. And when we, his body, suffer, we can endure the thorns. We can endure the thistles in the meantime because we know deliverance is coming. But if you bow to evil, then you will make your bed in a thorn bush. Don't do that. So we've seen them the desperate time but I want us to think next about the desperate measures. And in Esther chapter four, I counted three, uh, three desperate measures that were under, undertaken. The first is found in chapter four, verses one to three, where Mordecai approached the, the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes. That was risky. If he had gone one step further, uh, he would have been breaking the law. So why did he do it? Well, he did it to get Esther's attention. And, and it worked. Esther saw him and sent Hathach, a, a servant to Mordecai, to ask him what was wrong. This was before WhatsApp. And Mordecai brought the desperate time to bear on Esther's heart and mind. And in so doing, he put her in between a rock and a hard place in owning her identity before the king 
as a Jew. Just look back at chapter 4, verse 10 with me. It says, Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the ones to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, we love Mordecai's words to Esther. Who knows whether you have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. We know we love those words because we know the end of the story. We know that that's exactly why Esther had been called to the kingdom for such a time of this, but, but that was the point. Esther had no idea. Who knows? Mordecai asked. Well, Esther didn't, and Mordecai didn't. They genuinely had no idea how this was going to end. And so the two remaining desperate measures that were undertaken were, number one, the fast of three days and three nights of eating no food or drinking any water, and then Esther going to the king uninvited as a Jew to beg for the deliverance of her, of her people. So whereas Mordecai was not to bow down, Esther was to stand up and be counted. And friends, if Jesus Christ was willing to own his identity as the Christ to deliver us from destruction, then we too must own our identity as his followers. Not only not to be ashamed of him, but also because when we wear our, our identity in Christ on our sleeve, opportunities to witness abound. And that is how God's elect will be saved and saved from destruction at last. About a month or so ago, uh, I was sat there on the front row just waiting for the countdown there to reach zero so I could come and, and welcome you all. And when it got down to about the number 20, uh, Ada tugged me. And she said, Dad, why is preaching so hard? And how do I know that I've joined the right religion? And I was like, all right, just give me a second, Ada. Just give, just give me a minute. But, but it was interesting. At the first session of, of Christianity Explored, we were thinking about that very question. How do we know that all that we see and, and hear that Jesus did in the Gospels is not all just made up? It's not all just pretend. How do we know that it's for real? And one of my answers to that question 
was that the disciples, the early disciples, the apostles died, not just for what they believed, but for what they claimed to see. And there is a huge difference between those two things. Many, many people die today for what they believe. But, but the, the apostles died not just for what they believed, but what they claimed to see. And what was the result of that back then? Well, the result of that was the salvation of thousands, the strengthening of other believers to do the same, so that 2,000 years later, here we are today in this place, God's people, God's elect people, saved from destruction. And again, if we will stand up and be counted for Christ, that will very often be the way, very often be, be the means by which God's elect come to the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved from destruction. And so do you see then, here is divine sovereignty and here is human responsibility wed here in these two chapters. Mordecai was absolutely right. Deliverance for the Jews would have come from another place because God had promised the Jews that, that the Christ would, would be born in the line of Abraham. And yet Esther recognized her God-given responsibility to own her identity as a Jew and therefore plead on behalf of her people. And so it is with us. God's elect will be saved. No question. There will be not one elect person who is not in the glory in the end. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And yet, we have the responsibility of standing for Christ in our age to the end that the elect will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen, if you're here today and perhaps you're not yet a believer, but God has been impressing something of the truth of the gospel on your heart through the proclamation of his word here week in and week out. Friend, do not waste one more moment. Do not make one more excuse. Plant the flag in the ground and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not worry about what your friends or your colleagues or your neighbors or your colleagues are going to think of you or what they're going to say. God is able to keep you. He's able to keep you to the end. Maybe you're here and you are a believer, but maybe you're a quiet Christian. But friend, remember, if Jesus was willing to own his identity to be our Savior, then it is our responsibility to own our identity in him for whoever is ashamed of him and of his words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels very practically if you haven't yet been baptized baptism is the very means by which we identify ourselves publicly with the lord jesus christ but maybe you are a believer and yet you are afraid. Maybe you're afraid to own your faith in Christ before your family, before your neighbors or colleagues or, or whoever it is. And friend, the good news that I've got to deliver you to today is this. God is able to restore you to a place of courage and to a place of fearlessness in him. 
I said last Sunday that Alexander the, the Great, he conquered Persia a uh, hundred years after this moment here in the book of Esther. And there's a, a story that's come down to us from the life of Alexander the Great. He found out that one of his men, one of his soldiers had fled in a battle. He'd run away. And Alexander the Great tracked him down. And he asked him, why did you flee? And he said, because I was afraid. And he said, what is your name? And this trembling man said, Alexander. And so Alexander the Great looked at him and said, then either change your behavior or change your name. And aren't we so glad that Jesus doesn't speak to us like that when he finds that we're afraid? Aren't we so glad that he is gentle and lowly with fearful saints? Aren't we so glad that he, he was able to meet Peter shortly after his failure and ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? For each of those three denials. And he restored him. And he used him. And he empowered him to turn the world upside down in Jesus' name. And friend, the glorious truth is what he, what he did for him, he can do for you. Because his grace knows no end. And it is the same from age to age. There is no shadow of turning with him. Be restored then today. Why not take some time this afternoon just to get on your face before him and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Make me strong. Make me bold. Make me bold. And help me to own my identity in you just as Esther owns her identity for the good and well-being of her people as well. And maybe you're here today and you are more than happy to own your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, praise God for you. That is a work of God's grace upon grace in your life. But keep on going because these desperate times demand desperate measures for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ in whom I pray he bless this word to us in his name. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have every reason to be bold in our identifying with Christ. We thank you, Father, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is no weak thing. It is no shameful thing. It is a glorious thing. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive and restore us, that you would cleanse us from those times, perhaps when we have shrunk back and been afraid. And Father, we pray that you would believe that you've called us to, to this very generation. You've placed us in this town, in this day, for such a time as this. And that, Lord, your people would be saved through our witness and our identifying with Christ. Father, look on us, we pray, and restore us. Build us up, we pray, as a fellowship, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.